Well, I do invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 3, continuing in our our series in this uh, uh, book, Old Testament book of the Bible. And uh, it's a long narrative, and we're going to have to deal with it in uh, pieces. And I want to pick it up this morning in verse 10. So Exodus chapter 3 and verse 10. So there has been the event, the occurrence of the the bush that burned, but that was not consumed. And God then says in verse 10, as he speaks to Moses, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you, that I have sent you, When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Just so far, uh, the reading of God's word. Lord, we do bow our heads in submission to you. Do pray that you would help us in the understanding and, Lord, the application of what you're saying to us this morning through this passage. Pray, Lord, that your Spirit, your Holy Spirit, would be uh, speaking and challenging and encouraging and prompting each of us as we go forward in our desire to honor you and serve you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, quite an experience that Moses had, uh, watching a bush on fire and yet not seeing that it is consumed. And uh, then after that event, understanding that this was in fact God speaking to him, uh, God revealing himself uh, to Moses, uh, God following that with this very clear call that Moses should be his instrument that he would use in bringing the release of Israel from Egypt. And that's where we started reading our passage this morning. Uh, the call of God to Moses, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now those two things, just think about them for a minute. This amazing, supernatural, uh, unique, awesome uh, experience of a bush that's burning but is not consumed, and then the very clear, direct call from God to serve, one would expect, I certainly would expect, reading this kind of passage, that Moses would then get on with the job. What more does he need? Uh, This experience and, and this direct message from God, why not just get on and do the job? Well, Moses does what many of us often do, He hesitates. 
He doesn't immediately get on with the job. He holds back, and, and these seemingly he's unsure. He's not quite confident about going forward. He's not quite sure about the people that he's going to lead. And so he proceeds in this long narrative that follows with a number of questions, asking God questions, see, uh, seeking to address the concerns that he has. I want to bring that into our context and Perhaps just an illustration to, to make my point. Uh, I've never done bungee jumping, and I don't intend ever to do bungee jumping. But I've spoken to many, particularly young adults, who uh, do this kind of thing. And, and they say, you know, it's, it's, it's an exhilarating uh, anticipation to, to make the booking, uh, to, to prepare yourself when they tie you in that harness, and, and thinking about free-falling all those hundreds of uh, meters and, and experiencing, I guess, what they call an, an, adrenal, an adrenaline rush. Now, for those of us who watch, it looks easy. We may even speculate that one day, if we have enough money, if we have enough courage, we will step up to the plate and do it. But I think it's one thing to have the idea it's one thing even to plan to do the bungee jump. But it's another thing to take the plunge yourself. I understand that most people who do attempt bungee jumping uh, get so scared when they stand on the edge that they get pushed off. It's difficult to take the plunge in spite of having the idea or the thought or even the ambition to do so. And I think it's like that. It can be like that when any one of us as believers respond to a call from God to serve Him. I am speaking here today to us as a church in general. We often associate a call from God uh, to those who go into full-time service. Now, yes, it applies there. People sense subjectively a call from God. They, they, they respond to that call, and, and, and sometimes uh, they delay in obeying that call. They delay in taking the plunge uh, in that particular instance of a call. But every believer, each one of you, believers sitting here this morning, have been called by God to serve Him. To serve Him in His cause of gospel ministry, and, and, and that could be formally, it could be informally, it could be in the role of a deacon, it could be in the role of an elder, it could be in teaching ministry, it, it could be in a serving ministry, in a hospitality ministry, all sorts of ministries. God giving gifts, God calling His people, every one of us in the body to serve and fulfill a, a particular purpose. But we hesitate. We hold back. We, we wonder. We, we have questions. And I remember myself, uh, uh, soon after my conversion, having an inclination, perhaps in those days, uh, to want to be a pastor and sensing, yes, is God calling me? I think He's calling me. But, but it wasn't until my early 30s that I actually ended up in full-time pastoral ministry. Because during those years, there were obstacles, there were questions, there were uncertainties, and, and I just couldn't take the plunge. Well, Moses asked God a number of questions seeking to address some of his concerns that I believe will also help us address some of the concerns we have. The very first question that I want us to look at, and only two today, who am I 
that I should go? Who am I that I should go? I think it's harder today for us as we contemplate going and serving. And I think the reason for that is because of the advent of social media. We have access to so much via the internet, all sorts of platforms that we can access. We uh, can, at the click of a button, listen to the best preachers in the world. We can be exposed to what people are doing in, 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 in a foreign field of mission. Uh, we can watch what people are doing in terms of uh, compassionate ministries. And, and so there's a John Piper on the one hand, and, 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 and there is a David Platt on the other hand, and there's a John MacArthur, and, and, and we see all of this, and, and it makes us hesitate. All these capable uh, people who just seem to have every kind of gift and ability, and, and the temptation is for us to stand back and say, well, who am I that I should go? Well, I want to illustrate this but a little more specifically by having a glimpse at the life of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Most believers, evangelicals, will know of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and this is just something of what he uh, says uh, describing his life. No one living knows the toil and care that I have to bear. I have to look after the orphanage, have charge of a church with 4,000 members. Sometimes there are marriages and burials to be undertaken. There's the weekly sermon. The Sword and the Trial, which was a magazine that he published. Uh, the Sword and the Trial is to be edited. And besides all that, a weekly average... 500 letters to be answered. Now, we complain about emails. I know I do. But imagine handwriting, painstakingly responding to 500 letters a week. And I'm sure they weren't one-liners. This, however, is only half my duty. There are innumerable churches established by friends uh, with the affairs of which I'm closely connected, to say nothing of the cases of difficulty which are constantly being referred to me. So you, you get the idea. Here is a man of such capability. Uh, at his 50th birthday, a list of 66 organizations was read that he founded and conducted. In other words, he had oversight. Lord Shaftesbury was there and said, this list of associations instituted by his genius, superintended by his care, were more than enough to occupy the minds and hearts of more than 50 ordinary men. I'll go on. He typically read six substantial books a week. How many do you read? I know how many I read, and I take a long time to read a book. What is more, he could remember what he read and where to find it. He produced more than 140 books of his own, and there's a list of them. And then just to end it off, he often worked 18 hours a day. Now, now the reason I'm illustrating is, this, is, is because we get exposed at some level to this kind of ability and capability of the people around us. And, and I know for myself, when I hear that kind of ability and that kind of productivity, I want to give up ministry. 
I want to go home and curl, curl up in my room and, and just be on my own. Because I can't do it. I know I don't have, I'm, I'm not adequate, I'm not capable, and, and, and I'm ordinary, and, and most of us are ordinary. Just another illustration, I remember when I was growing up uh, in my home church, uh, South Africa's own Spurgeon was actually born into the Rosettenville Baptist Church as a baby, was raised there, and eventually became a great preacher, and he was principal of the Baptist College, and he was an elder of the Rosettenville Church, uh, Rex Matthew. Some of the older folk will remember Rex Matthew. Just to give some of the younger people an idea of his ability, he was so brilliant in mind, no notes, no notes when he preached, brilliant in mind, he was eloquent in speech, when he preached at our church, at the Rosettenville Baptist Church, he would do so for two hours. Not even the children would complain. He just, he was capable. He was able. He was eloquent. He had charisma. He had authority. He had presence. He had standing. <laughs> so here I am. And I'm thinking, I want to go into the ministry. And I'm looking at Rex Matthew, this giant. I'm not in his league and so can you understand the, the struggle? And, and I'm trying to share this because I think others go through these struggles. Moses, I can understand Moses asking, who am I? Who, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He asks that question because he felt inadequate. Now, there was a bit of a history. We know the history of what he did. There may have been, there were other things, and we'll pick that up later on uh, in, in, in the course of Exodus. Uh, he just felt he could not do this great work that God was calling him to do. He didn't, he felt as if he didn't have what it would take. You feel like that? Feel like you can't really step into another person's shoes, their shoes are, are too big. Are there those feelings that may be holding you back this morning from taking the plunge and getting involved, getting involved in a ministry, whether it be as a lay person, whether it be in full-time ministry, taking the plunge, stepping onto the plate, getting on and, and, and submitting to the call of God, obeying the call of God? Is something holding you back, and is it a sense of in, inadequacy? Now, God has an answer, and, and it's not just to Moses. It's to each one who is a believer. He says to him in verse 12, But I will be with you. Now, I'm not telling you anything you don't know today, but I'm reminding you, and I'm going to try and elaborate. You see, Moses had to be reminded, Moses had to learn, as we Christians today need to constantly learn and be reminded of, when he was being sent... When God calls you, when God sends you, He doesn't send you because He believes that you are adequate in and of yourself. But rather, we need to see, I need to see, together we need to see, it, God who sends because He's adequate in Himself. He's the one who comes alongside. He's the one that is with us. So, so God uses ordinary people. He uses ordinary people down through the ages. And, and, and the more we see that, the more it becomes evident that God uses ordinary people, it becomes evident that any fruit belongs to God. This is God's work. This is God's doing. 
It's what the Apostle Paul knew to be true when he speaks to the church at Corinth. He says, we have this treasure, speaking of the gospel, the message, the call that God has placed before them to do and and to convey and to preach and to teach. But we hold it in jars of clay, fragile and fickle and and easily broken and and cracked and and ordinary. And, And why do we have it like that? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Be encouraged this morning. And I urge you to step forward in the call and the gifts that God has given you. When God sends and as He sends and, and because you're a child, because you're His child, what He said to His disciples applies to everyone. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus says. Well, what is that? How does that help? Well, it helps because He then says, as you go and make disciples... I am with you always to the end of the age. No need to be distracted. No need to be worried about obstacles and and, and others who come to challenge and undermine. No, I am with you to the end of the age. We need to constantly be reminded, and I remind you this morning, God is big. We are small. It's okay. God uses ordinary people. God calls, and each one is called, and each one is sent, at least to some place, somewhere to do something. And the promise is you can step up as you teach, as you preach, as you serve, as you wait, never forgetting. I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength. But God adds an encouraging note, and I think it applies and can apply to us as well. He adds to the answer, not only will he be with Moses in answer to the question, but he says in the second part of verse 12, and this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So what's what's he saying there? He's saying, man, here is a sign which is a promise of success in the task that I've given you. You're going to lead them out from slavery. You're going to lead them to a new land. And and, and the sign is that they will worship on the mountain of God. And they did. Years later, there were many uh, deviations and and bypasses along the way, but but they did. And and for generations and and millennia thereafter, people can look back and, and see God was faithful to His promise. God was faithful to His Word. Now, what about us? What about us? We, we, we live in, a, in an age driven by business administration methodology. And the temptation in the church, and, and it occurs that, well, if we're going to be successful, we need to adopt a certain method or strategy, and, and we need to buy that book, or we need to submit to that program, or we need to follow that particular preacher in, in that particular place, or, or this movement has the answer. That's kind of what we as pastors are, are, are exposed to uh, regularly. Well, I don't believe in any of that, quite frankly, because God has already given us the sign. God has already shown us what the success will be. When he says to us, make disciples of the nations, and he says, I will be with you because all authority has been given to me, he then gives us the sign. What is the sign? It's Revelation 7, 9. 
It's a glimpse into heaven at the end of the age. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and the Lamb. You know the passage. God has given us a picture of the outcome. And down through the ages, as, as there will be seasons of great fruitfulness and seasons of less fruitfulness, but, but in all of it, God will achieve His purpose. The mandate that He gives will prove to be successful. And so for us as a church, the vision is bigger than just a full church. The vision is bigger than a particular book that some uh, uh, guy or, or woman writes. It's a great multitude in heaven, a multitude that will sound forth the praises of God. And eternity will look back and, and people will look back and say, you know those ordinary people at that ordinary church in that ordinary city where they were faithful to God? Success was achieved. Who am I that I should go? Who are you that you should go? Not because of talent, not because of intelligence, not because of background or ability or culture. God is adequate. I will be with you. Second question. Maybe I should just add, I've left out of a, a paragraph here. We are ordinary and small and fragile. But our Lord is big and powerful, sovereign. He will be with you and me, accomplishing his every purpose. But the second question Moses asks is, what shall I say to them? Now, Carol and I have raised uh, four children. They're all very different in personalities. There is one child, and I got into trouble in the hill service, so I won't identify. But there's one child who is particularly bossy of the four even as an adult. This child likes to give orders to the other children and has done so from when he could walk and talk. He. <laughs> okay. Shelly, go and take the rubbish and put it in the bin. I have another child who's also very cocky and uh, stubborn. Shelly, go and make your bed or Go and make me coffee or uh, bake us a cake or cook the meal. This, these orders flow. Well, I've heard and overheard the response from the younger one. Who says? <laughs> you hear your kids do that? Who says? You see, even in the mind of a child, obedience and cooperation all depends on who says so. Isn't that so? So the question here that Moses is asking is really one of the source of authority. Those people back in Egypt, subjected to slavery, need to know the source, that the source has credible authority. Verse 13, and Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your father has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? He could say, he could say, the God of your fathers has sent me, but he anticipates skepticism. 
And I think it has to do with the history. Something of Moses' performance or not so great performance in the past. And so he anticipates hesitation from the people. And he's asking God for a more specific identity that he can communicate to them that would eliminate hesitation from them in their obedience and cooperation in following Moses. Therefore the question, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Now it's possible not only then, but to bring it back to us, that we have a superficial understanding of who God is. So the who says will be in response to perhaps a wrong foundation and understanding of this God who commands us to go and to serve and, and, and to obey. People have influenced us with their own ideas and their own speculations. We too need to ask, who is it that sends? Who shall I say has sent me? Now, the Hebrew culture is very different to our culture today. I'm going to try and illustrate this. And uh, names had a very different meaning in their day, a, a far greater depth of meaning. I've heard people, for example, in our own age, choose the name of a child uh, because they saw a movie that they liked. Am I right? And, and, and there was a particular person in this movie that was really nice. And so they decide to, uh, they like Shirley Temple. So they call their daughter Shirley. So names become fashionable. I remember when we called our oldest son, we named him Joshua. It was a very uncommon name. But my daughter was telling me the other day in her class, there are four Joshuas. It just became a popular name. And I'll tell you a story, and I got permission, and at the hill I was panicking because I, it just came to me, and, and then I phoned my brother uh, on my way here just to clear with him. My brother of the two of us was the popular one with the girls. Um, he really is quite a, I suppose, good looking, and uh, the girls really liked my brother when we were teenagers and, and young adults. And there was this one particular girl that uh, liked him, and, and for the season, I guess, he liked her, and, and they were dating. Uh, but there came a time when he broke off the relationship, and she was devastated. She was heartbroken. Anyway, the months and the years followed. I don't quite remember how long it was, but the day came when she met someone else, and she got married. And so we were invited to the wedding, and my brother was there alongside of me as well. And we were sitting at the wedding, and this girl came down the aisle, and she watched my brother. I think she was hoping. Your last chance. Come on. He sat very quietly. Well, as time unfolded, that girl had a, a son. She called him David. My brother's name is David. Don't tell the husband. The point I'm trying to make is the significance we today attach to names. It's kind of random. Uh, not so the Hebrews. Very appropriate question that Moses is asking here because uh, asking God to identify something about his name, he's wanting to know 
something more specific about who God is. What is it and about God, the nature of God, the standing of God, the stature of God, the power of God, the authority of God, the position of God? What, what is it? What is it that, that, that a name could communicate to these people so that who says? Of course, it's the name, the name of God that would carry authority. And so what he does was rather, the, rather learn from God what God says about himself than have speculations of even what he learned at the bush. So what God had revealed to Moses at the burning bush, which was a graphic way of revelation, he now confirms in words. God confirms in words. God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Now that phrase is a very, very important phrase. And, and uh, uh, in Hebrew, the word is in the first person, and, and you can ignore all of this. I'm going to give you some examples in the first person, common singular, of the verb to be. Now, I don't think most of us here, yeah, I certainly uh, had even forgotten what the verb to be uh, is. Well, let me give you some examples. This is the way we use the verb to be. I am preaching. You are, or you could be sitting in your chair saying, I am sleeping or I am listening, or I am bored, or I am hungry. That, that's using the verb to be. It describes a situation. It gives clarity on a given person's uh, expression in terms of what they're saying. Now, God only says, I am. He doesn't add anything. And yes, the significance. When it's used as a standalone description, I am. It therefore is a, an indication of the ultimate statement of self-sufficiency, of self-existence, and immediate presence. In other words, it's all of what I preached last time at the burning bush, that God's existence is not dependent on anyone else. God's plans are not contingent on any circumstances. He promises that He will be what He will be for eternity forever. Unchangeable, all-sufficient, completely sufficient, accomplish all that he will do. Now, maybe a New Testament parallel. When in the book of Revelation, we're told Jesus, in verse 8 of chapter 1, I am the Alpha and the Omega. It's communicating something similar. Who is, who was, and is to come, the Almighty. Constantly God, forever God, unchanging God. Now here's the point. If you, if you didn't follow me with the verb to be, don't worry. This is the point. I am, uniquely I am, God, he's saying, was promising to free them. And they could count on him. Here's the lesson. You can count on God. In the midst of your challenges, in the midst of your struggles, in the midst of your hesitations, you can take the plunge into whatever ministry it is that is calling you, whatever circumstances you need to navigate, 
you too can count on Him. What a lesson. What a wonderful privilege. Not only ministry, but every circumstance of life. God is faithful, able to keep His promises. And so with that said, I have more questions, but I'm going to do that uh, the next time I preach. But let me conclude by saying that again. God does call you as a believer to good works. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which He has prepared in advance for you to do. The call is clear. And I want to, and I hope this morning I've encouraged you to see why it is we don't need to hesitate. We don't need to hold back. We don't need to be uncertain when we get involved in that which God is calling us and challenging us to do. And in the general sense, it's to make disciples of the nations. And yes, there will be questions. There are obstacles. And, and, and there will be times when we will hesitate. But let's always go back. Who am I? Ordinary. But he's extraordinary. What shall I say? Sending me. Is this just God amongst gods? No, no, no. I am. I am. He's sending you. Moses needed to learn, and I believe we need to learn. We need to be reminded. God is adequate. God is sufficient. The God who is sending is the all-sufficient one who will equip and enable us individually and even as a church as we go forward. And so, Lord, we pray. Uh, won't you encourage us and, and, and constrain us, even this morning, Lord, as we think about uh, the task of, of serving and, and following you. And, and here at Arcadia, uh, we're we at the workplace or in the workplace, or whether it be in a response to a call as a young person thinks about uh, the mission field or, or perhaps preparing for pastoral ministry or, or some kind of uh, work that will occupy them for the rest of their lives. Lord, subjectively, we pray that you would confirm those calls, but objectively, may we know your truth of who you are and what you've promised. In Jesus' name, amen.